financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. The highly anticipated second season of the hit podcast Proof is finally here. Proof is an investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here. Proof made headlines for its first season in 2022 after proving the innocence of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend Brian Bowling when they were just 17 years old. 25 years later, on December 8, 2022, both men were finally freed based on evidence unearthed by Proof. In the second season of Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, this time traveling the streets of Manteca, California, to uncover who really murdered 18-year-old Rene Ramos. On June the 5th, 2000, Ramos's body was found buried under a pile of debris inside the shell of a new Home Depot building. Despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, tips that were ignored until now, Renee's boyfriend, 18-year-old skateboarder Jake Silva, and Ty Lopez, the 33-year-old uncle of one of Jake's close friends, were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. One of the things that happened to me when I returned was a lot of people will have a heightened psychic abilities or healing abilities. I returned with the ability to feel people's energy and to move pain out of the body. And so I can feel the energy leaving the physical body and sometimes hovering in the room. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. To subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, Go to ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com and click on Get Access to Premium Episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs.
Dessert. Dr. Lonnie Leary has over 25 years experience working as a psychotherapist. And uh, she's called a professor of death studies. We'll find out about more about that in a moment. Uh, she served as the director of mental health services at uh, Whitman Walker AIDS Clinic as a professor of death studies, as I mentioned, at George Mason University and as a researcher at the National Cancer Institute of NIH, the National Institute of Health. She's also the author of a fascinating new book called No One Has to Die Alone and a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Leary. Hello, doctor. Hello. Thanks for having me. A professor of death studies. I've not heard of such a, a, a field. Uh, tell me more about that. Uh, well, the field is actually called thanatology, after the Greek god uh, Thanos, which is um, about death. Um, but there are um, there are some uh, universities and colleges that have programs in death education. And in my, um, it was a uh, graduate course at the university, George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. And I had nurses and psychology students, uh, clinical psychology students, counselors, educators um, in the class because, of course, all of those people would encounter people with end-of-life issues and grief issues, and we need to train them. And uh, we just don't do a very good job in our culture of um, even speaking about the subject. It's true. Uh, death is has really been sanitized uh, here in in the West, um, yeah. where we we hand the body over to professionals. It's taken mm-hmm. away. The body literally is is, is sanitized. Uh, where you know, a hundred years ago, everyone had a front parlor, and that's where the funeral was held. And uh, uh, of course, and you have in, in certain cultures where the family members gather together, they they wash the body, they anoint right. the body, they take it to the funeral pyre, they burn the body, and so forth. Mm-hmm. We we really do have an aversion not only to talking about it, but even uh, just uh, a dealing with it. And and here you have sat with over five hundred people as they died. As they died, and, and thousands of others in the process. Yes, it was the greatest privilege of my life. And 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 how how has that shaped uh, the way that you you feel about uh, about death? I, I mean, do you, are you are you afraid to die? Well, no, I'm not afraid to die. Um, and in I would say it's uh, two segments of that. Um, I'm not afraid to die because of my own near death experience, and that. I have been there and uh, and am back, um, and so I've, I've seen what it is, and I know I know so many things about uh, death and dying, the process, and I know that um, I was actually told I had to come back because I had work to do, and I knew that this was the work that I was to do. Um, but the other thing is that I'm also not afraid of dying because of all of the things that these very courageous patients have taught me. And I do ask um, direct questions. I do speak to them about the process because I know that so many people pull away uh, at this very, very intimate time. And the dying really want to share the experience. What they're most afraid of is being emotionally or physically abandoned. And so I I really uh, see my job as companioning them right up to the threshold and and almost as a midwife um, on the other end. That's an interesting way of looking at it. We have midwives bringing us in, and why, yep. so why not midwives taking us out? Absolutely. Tell me more about your NDE, your near-death experience. Um, I was uh, 28 and a half and had um, a two-year-old baby, which I, of course, adored, and a husband, and 
uh, everything was going well in my life. I went to a, um, a just a regular dentist appointment and was given nitrous oxide. Um, this is um, back in the early 80s. And, um, as laughing an gas. Laughing as gas. an anesthesia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Laughing gas, right? And uh, my body went into anaphylactic shock. It just had an allergic reaction to the um, to the nitrous oxide. I don't think it was anyone's fault. And um, I I was in the dentist chair one minute, and the next thing I knew, without any pain, which is important, uh, was out of my body and up on my consciousness was up on the ceiling, looking down at this um, inert body, which I felt a fondness for, but no attachment. I really, I felt as though it was a kind of a worn out, now mind you, I'm only 28 years old at the time, but kind of a worn out piece of clothing that had taken me to some really great adventures. Um, I'd kind of worn this body to a lot of parties kind of thing, but um, it no longer served me. I didn't need it. And I really knew that it was not me. And that is, that's a, a second important lesson. And um, there was no sense of time, so I can't tell you how long I was up in the corner um, ceiling, but I do know that I was trying to comfort the dentist and trying to communicate with him that I was okay and he didn't need to be anxious or, you know, afraid, but of course he didn't get the message. Um, The next thing I knew, I was going into a beautiful tunnel, um, and the tunnel was kind of an opalescent blue, beautiful, beautiful mother-of-pearl color, and my mother was right at the entrance of that tunnel, and my mother had died uh, 15 years earlier. Uh, my mother died when I was 13, very une- quickly and unexpectedly, and um, I had a lot of grief, a lot of regret and pain about that because I didn't say goodbye to her. I didn't get to visit her in the hospital, and it just felt like there was a lot of unfinished business. But when um, when I, I I saw her, I recognized her, and what's important in that encounter, the third lesson that I use is that um, in death there is healing because my mother um, actually hemorrhaged to death and, and um, was pretty broken, and um, in that encounter, she was whole and vibrant and beautiful and radiant and healthy. So um, in death, she had been healed. And we communicated telepathically. And uh, in other words, I thought and she received and she thought and I received. And um, I could because there was such a sense of timelessness, and, uh, and I didn't feel rushed. I felt no fear. I felt no anxiety. I really knew that I could have um, spent all the time I wanted catching up kind of in my life. But that was my, that would have been my ego's response if I had, you know, if, if back here, if someone had said to me, well, Lonnie, if you could see your mother, what would you say to her? Uh, the ego would say, oh, I'd tell her about 15 years of experiences. But when I had the opportunity in the tunnel, uh, it was my heart that responded, and what I knew, there was a, a deep, deep sense of wisdom, I don't know another word, um, that um, uh, my mother, I knew that my mother had never left me, she had always been with me, and in fact, she knew all those little details of my life that I had thought I needed to communicate to her, um, and so with that knowing, 
I um, I, uh, I next I noticed a light off in the far distance, and I and I it was just like I was a, you know, uh, it, it was a magnet to me, and I had to go to it. And so uh, I'm still surprised that I left my mother, but uh, it was all okay. And that's another big lesson that it it's all okay. If I could just interject here for a moment, Doctor Leary, yeah. at any point are you seeing uh, people in the dentist's office trying to resuscitate you? Were you clinically dead? Uh, do we know at this point? Yes. Oh, when I was up at the corner of the room, I mean, I didn't hear the pronouncement that I'm clinically dead, but but I knew that I was not breathing. I knew my heart had stopped, and my and the do- the dentist was trying to work on me. But after I left the room, my consciousness was no longer in the room, so I wasn't witnessing what was happening. Right. right. Yeah. So, um, but I, I was pulled towards this light, and as I went into the tunnel, I heard this beautiful, beautiful music, um, and I'll tell you about that in a minute, but um, I heard music, beautiful colors, and I was going towards this light, and the light got bigger and bigger as I got closer to it, or sensed that I was getting closer to it. You're seeing this incredible light, you're feeling this unconditional love, which seems to be a universal yeah. experience with people that have that have had an, an NDE. Continue, Dr. Leary. Right, right. Um, and I'm, I'm moving towards the present, this, this light, and this light is becoming bigger and brighter, um, and what I experience is the light is in front of me, and then the light is all around me, and then I am in the light, and what I know is that I am of the same substance as the light. The light and I are one, and I want to stay there forever. I feel as though I'm home. Um, the word bliss does not even come close to the experience, but really knowing an unconditional love that um, is you know, I've just never experienced before, and I wanted to stay there. And then again, um, telepathically, but I felt it in my consciousness, the light said to me, you must go back, and I yelled, no, with all the force that I had. And again, the light said, you must go back, you have work to do. And I yelled again, no. And then I felt as though I was coming back through the tunnel, almost like I was in a blender. It was very kind of disoriented and um, certainly um, disheartening. Um, you know, I, was, I, I wasn't confused. I knew that it happened. but And then I was uh, conscious again in the dentist chair. But um, How long were you gone? Uh, about eight to ten minutes. And... The dentist had never had that experience before and really just, I, I mean, didn't say so, but pretty much just wanted to make sure that I was okay and um, oriented and um, and even let me drive home. He did? Yeah. Wow. Now, uh, I'm guessing uh, he probably closed shop for the day. At least I know I would if something like that happened. Yeah. But now in eight minutes, in eight minutes, um, would that, would that, mean that um, uh, you would have been technically brain dead for a short period of time? You know, there are all kinds of reports of people having this experience for even longer, and and it's not documented. The dentist didn't document this. I mean, I don't have this in my dental records. Um, that's the best, you know, guesstimate that I have from what he was saying. Um, but, no, there was, obviously there was no brain death. Um, the... Um, and I believe, you know, he thought he resuscitated me, 
Um, and it doesn't matter to me. I mean, he, he can have the credit. That's fine. Um, but the experience absolutely changed the course of my life. I guess so. And guess it so. was after that um, that I started working in hospice because I, I knew I knew things about death and um, I needed to be near people who were dying. And I didn't tell the story. I Actually, I didn't tell. My husband knew something was um Something had transformed in me immediately just by looking at me. But I didn't tell the story um, to anyone because I really felt that I would have been judged or ridiculed, but certainly judged because it sounded like I was a horrible mother, that I was saying no to my baby who needed me, um, you know, to, in order to stay in the light. Um, I was saying yes to that love and peace. Um, I wasn't saying no to my child or my husband, but um, I, I'm certainly not afraid. I really think it's an adventure. I, um, I have great peace. If I die tomorrow, I have great peace about it. And in fact, I live my life as though I am going to die tomorrow so that there isn't any unfinished business. But I take what I know to the bedside of patients and also to the bereaved because, you know, um, to me, really, the, the story isn't the near-death experience. That's not the story. The story is what happens to people, who they are when they come back, because this is a transformative experience, and there are characteristics of, um, you know, most people that come back um, that people are changed. And, and how could um, you not be? Let me let exactly. me um, offer up the, uh, the old... Um, uh, counter from that comes from the what I call the materialists who believe uh-huh. that consciousness resides inside the human skull and that's it and that's all she wrote. Right. Uh, and they would say that what you experienced was a result of I guess it's referred to as cerebral hypoxia, lack of oxygen to the brain. How do you respond? Well, the the, the difference is that what happened to me is uh, now how many years are we talking about? Thirty years after this experience. The experience is still so vivid, but my life, the way I live my life is very different. And I guess I would just have to say that the proof is in the pudding. You know, I don't try to prove this. It, it doesn't matter. I, I think the proof is, is in my life, and uh, there, it's certainly consistent with all the other um, research in near-death experience, mm-hmm. um, you know, from uh, no sense of... of um, of, of fear, no, no fear of death, um, certainly becoming more spiritual and less religious, um, uh, just knowing that life has a purpose, all of those things, and then really using my life in service. Um, also, in, in, you know, increased intuitive um, and psychic abilities, a lot less stressed, um, a real hunger for knowledge and growing. Um, all of those things are... The, the byproduct of, of this experience. So I, I want to take that and I take it to the bedside and people know, people who are dying will share things with me that they don't share with other people. And in fact, often, often, um, at the very end, they'll say to me, you know, don't you? You know something. So and is it your contention, Dr. Leary, or it, not your contention, but it, is it your uh, a belief that... All of us will experience that same that 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 feeling of uh, uh, 
of love, universal yes. love. We will yes. see the light. We will see our, our, our ancestors who have passed on. Yes. Uh, but only a short number of us will actually come back and get to talk about it. Right. And, and I don't, I don't know why that is. Um, um, you know, I, I probably have, you know, I've got work to do. I've got lessons to learn. And, um, so I'm back. Um, it wasn't up to me. Um, I have talked with people um, who did have a choice, but I didn't have a choice. Um, but, yeah, when I was in the presence of that light, what I knew without, without any doubt, and I still hold this so firmly, is that there is an, I didn't need to ask for forgiveness. Forgiveness was instant. I was loved beyond all measure. Um, and, and I also knew that there were many paths to that light, and I think that's what happens to a lot of us who come back is that we turn from the dogma of um, religious uh, institutions and become much broader and inclusive and um, spiritual. Now, uh, but yes, I really believe all of us will be will have that unconditional acceptance and love. It- my uh, narrow experience with NDEs, NDEs, just as a broadcaster and talking to people like yourself who've, who've, who've had one, and as I mentioned off the top, I, I recently spoke to a Dr. Anthony Sicoria, um, who was actually included in, in a chapter in a book by Oliver Sacks. Uh-huh. Um, he struck by lightning, uh, had a, just a classic NDE. Mm-hmm. And, um, but what happened to him afterwards was it... Um, uh, he became fascinated with, uh, obsessed with classical music and wanting to learn the piano. Which right. He well, did. that's part of that. That's part of what people come back to. Also, they're very sensitive to light and to sound. And um, I, I couldn't walk into noisy groups for a long time. And people are drawn to the classical music. But the way that it changed his life, actually. Because he he needed to seek answers, and his this was a man of science. This is an orthopedic surgeon. Yep. Um, who now who his entire life was just rocked, and he and it ended up uh, at least initially destroying his marriage. They've since yep. reconciled, but I mean it can be difficult. I'm guessing for the people that around the person who's had an NDE, yes, but, uh, it can be very difficult. Very yes, very. In in fact, this is an interesting statistic that 65 percent of marriages, uh, of, of near-death experiencers' marriages um, end in divorce after this experience, as opposed to like 50% of the general population, because people, when this happens to you, your values are changed, careers are changed, religious views are changed. And, I mean, I knew when I came back that my husband had to be on board with me. There was, uh, there was no... There wasn't going to be a negotiation. My life was going to be a service, and he could either be with me in that or not. And how did that work out? How yeah. did, that, did it work it out? It worked out just fine. Good, he, good to know. He's a huge supporter, and um, um, you know, it, on his own, on his, on a different path, but um, absolutely supports me. Um, but that doesn't surprise me that um, his marriage would fall apart, and that his career would change, and his focus would change. That's not uncommon. And uh, when you sit, when you, you sit with a dying patient, uh-huh. I know these are people that are terminally ill, and for them, yeah. there's no coming back. But do, is there, in their final moments, did you do you get a glimpse that they are that they are undergoing this these same sorts of 
experiences, the bright light, yes. meeting up with ancestors. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that's called a near-death awareness as, a, as opposed to a near-death experience. A near-death awareness, and, and oh, I'll tell you, Richard, I absolutely teach this and, and um, encourage people to learn how to listen to the dying and really open up to the symbolic language. Um, and because I am um, open and encouraging of it uh, and, and can ask questions, um, the dying often tell me, of visits from loved ones who had predeceased them, and it's very, very common for the dying to see someone enter the room. And I mean, I've I've watched um, I've watched patients almost, you know, argue, um, "Take me now, take me now," you know. Um, or another patient will talk about, uh, will say to me, "Lonnie, do you see that train? The train's coming again." Um, and I'll say, "Well, do you think it's time to get on the train?" Or tell me, is there somebody else on the train that's waiting for you? And, you know, just that, just the opening, the wondering allows them to explore it instead of be afraid of it. But generally, they're not afraid because these are loved ones who are coming. And even children, um, when I was um, at NIA, the National Institute of Health, um, and working, um, there were children who were dying of AIDS, and um, we would speak to the parents after the death. And so important to be able to ask open questions such as, now this is to a bereaved parent, I would say to them, have you had any experience of your son since he died? And they would just lean into me and thank me profusely for asking that question because they so wanted to talk about the after-death communication or their child coming to them in a very, very vivid and meaningful dream. And usually, uh, you know, consistently the message from the deceased is, it's okay, I'm okay, um, and I'll see you again. And you can imagine the significance of of validating that experience for a bereaved parent. It makes all the difference in the world in how they grieve. And yet, for the majority, they don't get that after-death communication. I'm guessing, I don't know what the statistics are. I mean, an, an awful lot do, and they, uh-huh. and, they t- and they talk to me on the program, but uh, most don't, I'm guessing. And why well, is that? those parents, I did a study, and those parents, um, actually, the, the um, statistic was 86% of parents did report that really and i'm going to and i'll tell you one of the most fascinating stories so um i knew i was going to get a you know a lot of skepticism and flack about this and so i wanted to do another study with the most difficult i thought um population and so i chose to study parents who had children die of sids sudden infant death syndrome oh dear and mm. these were pre-verbal infants and I polled a large group of parents at the international SIDS uh, conference, and the statistic came back the same, about 85, 86%. And, you know, you would say, well, you know, how can children who are preverbal communicate? It, these parents had a visceral sense um, that their child was okay. They saw them. They got that, you know, they got that... Um, that smile or that glint in their eye or something, but these parents were absolutely convinced. Eighty-six percent message from their child that they were okay. I'm absolutely uh, gobsmacked at that statistic. Eighty-six yeah. percent. All right, back with more in a moment. My name is Richard Serrett. 
Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal. But if you want more, listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com try. Go to shopify.com try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com try. C60 Evo delivers the miracle molecule, ESS60, it's pure carbon 60. Why not love your body and share C60 Evo with those you love? ESS 60 from C60 Evo is a mega antioxidant for increased strength, endurance, flexibility, and a deeper sleep. It's great for pets too. I take a tablespoon every day and so does the mighty Aphrodite. We're both sleeping better than we have in years. And during the day, we have such tremendous energy and vitality. We're both pain-free. In a landmark peer-reviewed animal study in Paris, France, rats fed ESS 60 lived twice their normal lifespan. Go to c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen or click on the C60Evo link in the episode notes. Use the code EVRS at checkout and save 10%. ESS60 from C60Evo. Order your miracle in a bottle today. In another reality, Richard is a very strong and handsome man. Just not in our reality. Although I heard somebody passing him in the hall the other day, and it was good, good, a handsome man, Richard is. I made that up. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. 
Dr. Lonnie Leary is with us, and uh, we're talking about near-death experiences, and her book is No One Has to Die Alone, and uh, she has sat with over 500 people as they died. She's the author of No One Has to Die Alone. I guess from a, uh, a religious pr- uh, perspective, uh, uh, coming at it from a, a Christian perspective, if there is a heaven and a hell, one would expect that, that there would be um, near-death experiences that aren't too pleasant. I don't know that that people would necessarily report glimpses of, uh, you know, eternal damnation or, or uh, fire and brimstone. But um, as you were pointing out before the break, there have been some unpleasant uh, experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, we, but we tend to we tend to hear the uh, again the ones of the uh, you know the, the bright light, the tunnel, the love uh, being welcomed by those on the other side. Uh, again, going back to the people that you've sat with, these 500 dying patients, is there anything um, that you've observed at the moment of death mm. uh, that you found unexpected? Uh, I'm thinking of, um, I've heard reports and nurses and so forth who've, who've told me on the air, they've seen, they've seen they, they believe they've witnessed the soul leaving the body. Uh-huh. Have, you, have you seen anything like that? Well, I can I can feel the energy leave the body. One of the one of the things that happened to me when I returned was a lot of people will have um, um, heightened psychic abilities or uh, healing abilities. I have I, I returned with the ability to um, feel people's energy and to move pain out of the body, um, and so I, I I can I can feel the energy um, leaving the physical body and sometimes hovering in the room. Um, that it, that no longer surprises me, um, and certainly doesn't frighten me. And but I, I do experience that. And what about family members? Uh, I, I don't know what if there's a name attached to this, but the family members whose loved one is dying and has a near death. Um, what did you call that? Um, uh, near death awareness. Near death awareness. Uh-huh. Do, do family members also sense something? If they're gathered around the, uh, the, 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 you know, holding a vigil, you know, I, I don't find that very common. Um, the the person who is leaving their body um, really has a just a heightened heightened awareness. People, family members who are gathered around the bed are usually um, pretty cloaked in um, their own grief. And that does make it difficult to um, to get outside of themselves. Um, and, and one of the reasons that I think the work is so important is, is because I, I somehow can communicate through stories or encouragement that at the moment of death that the, the person is not suffering, that death, sometimes dying may be painful, but today with hospice and palliative care services, death actually dying doesn't have to be painful but certainly i know that the moment of death is not painful and that we can continue to have a relationship with our loved one even after they die um and that contact can occur and that you know we need let's pay attention so pay attention to dreams pay attention to those things that um, to the light that comes on or the music that comes on that normally we might dismiss pay attention as the op, you know that that it might be an opportunity um, I, I think all of those things can be very comforting to both the person who's dying and to those who are grieving 
the loss of that loved one. As you're sitting with a patient, and let's let's assume for a moment that they have no. Um, there's, there isn't a, a spiritual component to their life. They're not. Uh-huh. They're, they're an agnostic or they're a, an, an atheist. Uh-huh. Uh, and they tell you that they are afraid to die. Uh, what, what do you say to them? They're afraid to die. Well, I usually ask them, "What do you think is the worst part of dying?" So there's a lot of information in that that statement that we haven't gotten to yet. So I, I'll, I'll want to open that discussion up and and. They want someone so badly to listen to them because most people, when, when they say that, when the patient says that to a family member, um, the family member will close down the conversation because they too are afraid of dying. But because I'm not afraid of dying, I can inquire with them. I can wonder with them. I can go there. What do you think is the worst part of dying or death? What do you think is the worst thing about death? Um, what do you imagine? What is your fantasy? What is your belief? And in that, then I can start to identify what they need. So oftentimes, a person is, what they're most afraid of about death is that people will forget them. Or they're afraid that they will die without before they were forgiven for something. Well, if I can hear that from the patient, then I know what they need. And, uh, for instance, um, I'm, uh, a patient says, you know, I, I just did some horrible things to my son, and I'm so afraid that um, he'll never forgive me, and I'll never have another chance. Okay, well, w- would you be willing to talk to your son about that now? And so I might call the son in and say, this is important in order for your father to let go and die in peace. Would you be willing to hear his apology? Would you be willing to forgive him? I'm not, uh, like you, I'm not afraid of, of, you know, what's beyond death. I am somewhat nervous about the dying process. Uh, right. If it's, you know, a long, agonizing right. process. In particular, the idea of, of struggling for breath. I, I happen to be very claustrophobic. And uh-huh. uh, so the idea of that sensation that I'm not getting enough oxygen into my lungs, I, it, it can be, a, I, mm-hmm. I can go into a panic. Okay. So that, that fear I have. What would you okay. tell me? But see, Richard, that's so helpful to know, because if I was working with you, then I would be able to work with the, um, the hospice nurses or your physician to really address that need, and um, we'd always have oxygen there for you. We would have a physical therapist there, perhaps, with you um, to do exercises with you that expanded and opened up your chest and your lungs. Um, I would be able to relieve some anxiety with massage and touch which a lot of the dying do not get. Um, and we would talk directly about your fear and what helped and what doesn't. Interesting. That's, you know, that's, an, that's a very good point. You know, the, that we, we just tend to cast off the dying. They're still a patient up, into, up to the moment. They're living right up. Yes. I want them to live right up to the last moment of their, of their life. And there are so many ways that we can help and make that happen. And one of the ways is by having these conversations with our loved ones right now, before you need to have them, when you are conscious and you're not terribly emotional because, uh, and you're not fearful because you don't have a terminal illness. We need to be having these conversations around the dinner table. And um, so I get called into families um, often because um, mom is getting older, and um, the daughter doesn't know what her wishes are, but she's afraid to ask mom, 
And the reason she's afraid to ask is because she doesn't want mom to think, you're becoming a burden and I just want you to die. So I go into the home and I model, I give them the language, I show them what it looks like to have that conversation. And I might sit down with the mom and say, you know, Betty, I am so glad that I live to be 58. Um, actually, I guess I'm 59. Um, I'm so glad that I live to be 59 because I've just gotten information about what it takes to be an organ and tissue donor. And I figured out... Um, uh, that I want to be cremated and where I want my ashes. And I'm so glad that I figured this out so that I can tell my loved ones so they can really make sure I get what I want. And I'll go through a whole lot of different scenarios and, cho- and decisions that I need to make before my death. And then I'll say, and Betty, I wonder if you've thought about any of those things. Because, you know, I know your daughter wants to support your wishes. But it's really hard to do that if she doesn't know what they are. Indeed. Well, so can we start to have that conversation? You know, just little bit by little bit. But um, we do not want to die and let our legacy be uh, that what we've left behind is that our loved ones are anxious and grief-stricken and feel guilty because they didn't do, they didn't know what we wanted and they might have done the wrong thing. Death is, in the West, death is failure. It's perceived as a failure by the medical community. We have yep. lost one. Uh, it's yep. to be avoided at all costs instead of it's just another part of life. It's, and it can be beautiful. Death can be it, beautiful. This can be the most intimate time in a relationship instead of a train wreck. And if we don't talk about it, if we're not present with each other, it can become a train wreck that wounds us. For the rest of our life, those Excellent that are, point. you know, the survivors. Excellent point. We'll have to do this again because there obviously there's so many aspects uh, that we didn't cover. I'd uh, love to. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.